Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. That means that we need to confess sin if necessary. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, walk in the light, abide in Christ. And all of those terms are synonymous for our spiritual life when we are walking in partnership. That's what fellowship means, walking in partnership with God. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by means of the Holy Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh, so we need to confess sin and be restored to that uh, ongoing walk by the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for another day to serve you, another opportunity to study your word, an opportunity to think through the significant issues of life as from the vantage point of your word. It is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we study your word, we are enabled to understand the things that go on, on around us and that we are able to focus upon your plan. And we recognize that when we live in the midst of a civilization that is on decline, as ours is, and we witness the chaos and the uncertainty and the instability around us, that these are just symptoms of a much more serious illness, and that is the fact that we are in rebellion against you and that there are too many people in this nation who are hostile, actively hostile to Christianity, to the Bible, to biblical truth. We pray that you might change them because that's what you do. That's your grace and that's how you're able to transform this world. And Father, we pray that you would uh, give Christians the grace orientation and the kindness and the gentleness and the love for unbelievers to be able to uh, be patient with them, give them the gospel, explain the truth of your word that you might work in their lives and transform them uh, just as you did the Apostle Paul. And we pray that we might understand the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, the last chapter in 2 Samuel. And this is not going to be the last lesson, though because we will need to wrap it up, as is my custom, to finish a book and then go back and summarize it and do, the, do an overview and come to, you know, hit the high points, understand the major themes, the major doctrines that we've covered uh, in the book. Of course, that's just doing it sort of a uh, flyover, but it helps us pull all of those all of those things together. We're always picking up new listeners. In fact, I was explaining this to someone recently that we have what I call A-level lessons, and those are summaries, like at the beginning of a book and different times in the middle of a book. And and those are good, especially like in some some of the books I've been more consistent with it, like in... Uh, like in Genesis and, and Revelation and Matthew, some others, because I know that when we have Sunday school teachers, we have prep school teachers, we have pastors who and seminary students, and I remember this when I was in seminary that I would, would sit down and say, well, 
I need to find out about this particular passage, and then I would look it up and realize that there were 40 hours on that paragraph, and I'd think, oh, my, I'll never get through that. I just have to write a three-page paper. So um, uh, that's why I do that. It is helpful if you're teaching Sunday school also to have uh, a place where you can get this in synthesis. So uh, tonight we're looking at God's grace in judgment. This passage is one that has some uh, problems for some people, and there's some contradictions other people think, and we'll get into all of that. But the main theme of this is that God is bringing a judgment on Israel, and it is related to uh, not only to the sins of the people, but sins of David. And God is going to bring a great judgment, but in the end, we're going to see his grace as he stops the judgment early. He stops it at a particular location at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, and that this is a place where he then will instruct David to erect an altar, and this is to be the location of the temple. And this is since then known not as a threshing floor, but as the temple mount. So that is God's grace in judgment. So just to review in uh, the overview of 2 Samuel, three divisions, 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 10, is the focus on how God blesses David in expanding the kingdom, giving him victory over his enemies, and uh, providing a unified kingdom. Seven years in Hebron before he moves to a a more united kingdom in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 11 to 20, that's where we see uh, uh, David's sin, the consequences of his sin, God's discipline on him, the reverberations of it in the kingdom, like an earthquake. It, it, It hurt a lot of people and caused instability in the kingdom for a while. Then God restored David back to the throne. We looked at the whole principle, principles of rebellion. And then these uh, six or seven appendices that we have at the end of the book. I have six on this slide. I need to fix that. Uh, seven different events. And this last one that we come to is ac- actually in uh, in a chronological order because it, according to his first chronicles, it comes at the end of David's reign, whereas the others occurred at different times. And so we've looked at the organization of the kingdom in 2 Samuel 20, 23 to 26. There is a famine judgment uh, that comes on Israel because of the sins of the house of Saul and of sins of Saul actually against uh, the Gibeonites. And then we see that uh, uh, the first episode of description where God protects David in battle due to his mighty men. Then there's the two middle sections. David David praises Yahweh for his faithful deliverance in a lengthy psalm of thanksgiving. 2 Samuel 22, which is the same or almost identical to Psalm 18. And then fifth, David's last uh, testament. This isn't his very last words. It is a written document where he is praising God for allowing him to uh, write these prophetic psalms about the Messiah. And that's the first seven verses of chapter 23. Then we come to another section mirroring the first section where David is protected again by his mighty men. And this is in 2 Samuel 23, 8 to 39. And then remember we saw the first there's the famine judgment in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. Now there is a plague and a judgment, and David's confession of sin uh, brings that to a conclusion. So we've seen that this is in the form of a chiasm, a chiasm being a way of writing that, that mirrors like your first three or your first five or your first 20 points with your next uh, two or three or five or 20 points. And it's always designed literarily to focus attention on the center. And the center of this is the last verse of Second Samuel 22, verse 51. He, referring to God, is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed 
to David and his descendants forevermore. The whole centerpiece here focuses on God's wonderful grace in granting David a, uh, a covenant and going back to the Davidic covenant. So now we come to this last episode. This is an episode where there is sin in the land. We've seen this before in places uh, like Judge, I mean, excuse me, Joshua 4 with the sin of Achan after the defeat of Jericho. And then the, the uh, Israelites move from Jericho to, to Ai, and they are going to do battle there. But um, they are initially defeated, and, and a huge number, 17,000, 18,000 uh, Israelites are killed. And God comes back and says, well, you didn't do what I said. You didn't cleanse the camp. And the ca- there was one man, Achan, in the camp who had uh, taken booty and plunder. And that was, uh, that was forbidden by God. They could not take booty or plunder. They were supposed to kill every man, woman, and child. And he had taken booty and he had buried it under his tent. And his family knew about this and they were all involved. And so now there's this uh, massive defeat and and seventeen eighteen thousand Israelites are killed in that battle, and everybody is thinks God has deserted them, but God's just teaching them a lesson that His people have to do things God's way, and that same principle is true today that a right thing has to be done a right way, and a right thing can't be done a wrong way or it's wrong, and of course a wrong thing done a wrong way is wrong, and so this is this is the principle, and so David is going to make a decision and do something in in chapter 24 that is going to bring the wrath of God upon them. And people have all kinds of reactions to this. They, they just think God is so mean and so horrible, and they forget that it is due to God's grace that we wake up every morning. It is due to God's grace that we breathe every breath. And God has nothing in his character that necessitates that he leaves sinners alive for another second. But it is due to his grace that we continue, due to his grace that he didn't just wipe everybody out after Adam sinned. It is due to his grace that he's providing all of this for us, and he continues to be gracious to us from from his love. Now, one of the things we have to look at before we can get into the text here, is to recognition that David's a sinner. And we know that already. Everybody says, well, what's new? We're all sinners. That's right. But a lot of Christians have these, these um, naive approaches to the Bible because they look at these heroes of the faith. They forget that every hero of the faith is flawed. Everyone had sin, and the Bible uh, in a way that is distinct from every other religious text in the world, focuses on both the flaws as well as the uh, good side of, of, the, of the heroes. But it often uses language that confuses people. And constantly when we read through the Psalms, there is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And people wonder, well, who are the righteous? And we think in terms of those are the ones who are living a certain way versus the wicked, and that's partly true. But what we have to do is understand that what makes a person righteous is their trust in God. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, the first five verses in Genesis 15, Abram, Avram, is bargaining with God because God has made him a promise that, that he is going to provide descendants, a seed is the Hebrew word, uh, uh, he's going to provide descendants for Avram that will be numbered like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sh- seashore. And so Avram is getting a little impatient because he and Sarah are getting old, and he comes to God and he says, okay, I'll adopt my slave Eleazar, and uh, we'll just make him my son. And God says, no, you're going to get a son from your own loins. And then at the end of that conversation, we have 15.6, and he, that is Abram, Avram, 
believed in the Lord. And most people take it that that is he's believing God for what he just said about um, his his servant. Uh, and so that's not true because there's a significant verb tense shift in verse 6. That's why in, like, for example, when I copy from the New King James, it has a paragraph mark there. It, it is not flowing from those previous five verses. It is an aside. It is an insertion by the writer who is Moses to remind the reader of something significant. And that is that at some unknown time in the past, Avram believed in Yahweh. He believed in the Lord. He trusted in God. And at that time, we're told, God accounted it or imputed it to him as righteousness. And so Avram was declared justified at that point as every believer from Adam until the end of the millennial kingdom is justified. It is by putting faith and trust in Christ. And at that point, there's the designation of righteous. So we're positionally righteous, even though at times we are disobedient to God and we sin, maybe for a short time or a long time or maybe even decades, uh, you're still positionally righteous. We don't, don't ever use that. But in the, so in the Bible, a righteous person is not someone who is sinless, not some super saint, but some, a person who is a sinner, but he knows how to handle his sin. He knows that in, when he sins, he is to confess his sin and to get right with God. And so this is what makes David a, a, a great believer. It is not because he is sinless, because he has uh, significant sins, but he is an example of a righteous man, is one who is positionally righteous before God and who knows what to do when he sins, and that is to confess his sins. And we'll see an example of David's confession here when we get down to verse 10. So he isn't perfect. He has great sins like almost everyone, but he is uh, the beneficiary of God's grace and God's God's forgiveness. Now, I want to point out two key verses that tell us something unique about David's relationship with God. God never says this about anybody else. In 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen, before David is ever selected or on the scene, uh, there is a, a disobedience on the part of Saul and he is told by Samuel that the, uh, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. So that hasn't quite happened yet, but it's about to. So uh, he's referring to David here as a man after his own heart, and yet this is a man who... Uh, committed some egregious sins, committed adultery with Bathsheba. See, in, in America, see, we're all products of, uh, of our American legalistic Christian culture. And so in American evangelicalism, it's, it, it's a bad sin, but it's not really a bad sin unless sex is involved. And we don't get that from the Puritans. We get that from the Victorians. See, everybody, all the liberals want to blame the Puritans because they hate real Christians who are consistent. But the Victorians coming out of England were very prudish, and that was uh, um, uh, the result of uh, Prince Albert. And so this is a major problem. And and for us, we look at the sins of David with Bathsheba and the sins of David with Uriah the Hittite, and this is going to be a greater sin. The sin of numbering the people, which we don't think is such a... Why is that so big? He takes a census. He, he figures out how many troops he has. Why is that such a big sin? And we'll answer that. It is a worse sin than the overt sins because m- most of the time your mental attitude sins precede your overt sins and there's nothing more deadly, more self-destructive than arrogance and pride. And David is a man after God's own heart. Above all, even though he sins, he comes to God in confession. Even though he sins, his heart desire is to serve God. And that's true for so many Christians. They know they sin. 
They confess their sin. They want to serve God. They want to do the right thing, but none of us are perfect, and nobody's going to live a sinless life. Proverbs talks about the sin of pride and arrogance in Proverbs 8.13. It is in contrast to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance as well, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So we have to understand what God means when he talks about hate. God does not hate. God doesn't hate anyone. God doesn't hate anything. This is a figure of speech. It is an idiom. Uh, we've studied this many, many times. That uh, uh, And a couple of examples, some of the most significant examples, relate to uh, the statement that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And so many people have struggled with that. It's quoted in Malachi chapter 1, a couple other places in the New Testament. Uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And, and many people, and mostly Calvinists, take this as a statement of, uh, of salvation, that God is choosing Jacob for salvation and he's rejecting Esau. It's, it's acceptance and rejection, but not for salvation. It's rejection... I mean, it is acceptance of Jacob that the line of the seed is going to go from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and then to Jacob's sons. But he's he's not going to have the line of blessing go through Esau. Now, Esau is blessed by God. Scripture says in several places God richly blessed Esau. And I believe Esau was probably a believer. Now, when Esau was... was, uh, conned out of his inheritance by uh, the double-dealing Jacob, he was pretty jealous and bitter and angry and threatened to take uh, Jacob's life. But that doesn't mean he wasn't saved. That means that he just, like many of us, we get pretty mad and angry driving down the freeway and somebody cuts us off and we get pretty upset. We may not be breathing threats of of murder, but uh, it may come close. Scripture te- talks about the fact that love uses this language of love and hate in terms of acceptance or preference and rejection. For example, in Genesis, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. But it's kind of unusual because after it says that he hated Leah, he has sexual relations with her six times or many times and has six sons with her. So there's not a lot of hate there. In Genesis 29:30, it says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. That doesn't mean he didn't love Leah. It just meant that he loved Rachel. She's the one I'm, she's the one he preferred. He had originally wanted to marry Leah. He had worked for I mean Rachel, he had worked for 7 years to marry Rachel and then he was outconned by his uh, soon-to-be father-in-law Laban, who uh, switched girls on him at the last minute, and he ended up taking Leah, who was the older sister, first. And in 2930 of Genesis, it's translated that when God saw that Leah was unloved, now that's a bad translation. The Hebrew word is sane, which means hated. But it, it, it doesn't mean that Jacob hated her. It just It's this contrast. He, he preferred Rachel... And she was the one who he uh, loved most. And he did not uh, accept uh, Leah as his primary wife. So the idea here is that the Lord hates evil doesn't mean that God gets all worked up emotionally and hates evil. It is that God has rejected evil. He has not accepted evil. And he's also the perverse mouth I hate. He, he, he rejects that. And it is, does, has nothing to do with God having some sort of emotional sin. In Proverbs 3.10 we read, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. So the contrast is between arrogance or pride, which is self-absorption. It is all related to self, self-indulgence, self-justification, self-deception. Uh, arrogance can't produce anything of value. And this is one of the things that we see, even though a lot of Christians have gotten caught up with the things that are unsettled right now and the riots and uh, probably the looting as well. It all comes from arrogance. 
And it's a violation of numerous passages in Scripture in terms of the behavior of a believer. And it doesn't matter whatever may happen out there in, in the world to you or to someone you love or care about. What matters is that we walk with the Lord in the integrity of our soul so that God the Holy Spirit can exhibit the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So by pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Wisdom is the skillful application of Scripture, and you can't do it in arrogance. It has, you have to humble yourself under the hand of God. Uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is what happens to David. It is not the act of taking a census, counting his soldiers, finding out Uh, how many men he has, it is that he's doing it out of an act, out of a mental attitude of self-sufficiency and a mental attitude of arrogance. All the enemies of Israel have been defeated by God. Uh, He is in a position of prosperity, and he's failing the test of prosperity because he's gotten to the point where he thinks that it's the result of what he did and not all the result of what God did. Uh, Proverbs twenty nine twenty three: a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Now, we all have a problem with humility. If you don't have a problem with humility, it's because you're, you're dead. You have a sin nature, you're going to have a problem with humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 8 lays it out. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. That's calling upon them to humble themselves into authority. And that's exactly what has to happen. That's not what we're seeing in our country right now in all of these riots. They're not humbling themselves to authority. They're they're in rebellion and they're in sin. Uh, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, not just in authority, but to one another, and be clothed with humility. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, God resists the proud. He quotes from the Proverbs, but gives grace to the humble. So God is resisting. He sets himself against the proud, the arrogant. What's the conclusion? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time by casting. How do you humble yourselves? By casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And then it goes on to say, be sober. That's to have an objective mental attitude. Be vigilant. That is watchful. Why? Because we're in spiritual warfare, and the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I brought that in is because you don't always know when it's the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. And the devil works behind the scenes, so you never really know how it's happening. But that's what is happening in in, uh, 2 Samuel 24. And this leads us to the conflict that people have a lot of angst over and think there's some sort of conflict in the Bible, and they can't really understand uh, what it is all about. Um, And what we read in verse 1 Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them, against Israel, to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, I want you to carefully observe the text here. First of all, we're introduced to the phrase, the anger of the Lord. It does not have a word for anger a literal word for anger in the original language. The word for anger is the word af, which means nose. And it says that the anger or the nose of the Lord burned against Israel. You You get a picture when somebody gets all mad and their face gets all red and their nose gets red. See, uh, Hebrew is a very graphic physical language. And so that's what the idiom is. It is that the uh, nose of God burned. Now, does God have a nose? No, he doesn't have a nose. That's what's ca- This figure of speech is what's called an anthropomorphism. And that's when you assign to God a physical human attribute, an attribute of the body like eyes, nose, arm, hand. And God doesn't actually possess those 
but you're using that in a figurative way in order to communicate what God is doing to help you understand the policy or the plans of God. And so here we have this phrase that, that God's nose is burning. Now, he, he's not getting emotional. I remember reading an article some years ago. I won't mention who it is because you all know him, but he's in heaven now, and so he knows the truth. Um, and he wrote an article on the emotion of God. And I called him up and I said, have you looked at the Hebrew there? No, yeah, he was a Hebrew guy. I said, it says God's nose burned. Is that literal? He said, no. I said, so it's an anthropomorphism. It's a figure of speech for, his, for an anthropopathism, which is assigning to God an emotion, a human emotion that he doesn't actually possess for the same purpose, to help communicate to us through this, these figures of speech. And so uh, we ended up having long arguments and everything because you never call up somebody right after they publish an article and start taking apart their basic thesis. Um, but I was young, and I always did that kind of thing. Um, but that was, that's the problem here. The anger of the Lord doesn't mean that God is angry any more than when you talk about a judge in a courtroom and say, well, he threw the book at me. You don't mean that the judge lost his temper and picked up a volume of law and threw it at you. It is just a figure of speech to state that you were judged and penalized to the fullest extent of the law. Hopefully the judge never got emotional because we want a judge that is objective and dispassionate and not emotional. And so this is really a figure of speech expressing that the, the, the righteousness of God and his justice have been violated, and because the righteousness of God, uh, they have done something that falls short of the righteousness of God, then the justice of God must judge them. And so that's what's happening here. Israel has not adjusted to the righteousness of God, and as a result, the justice of God is going to come down on them. And that's the second thing to notice, is that the anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, was aroused against Israel first. So Israel, the nation, the people are, are, are into some area of sin. And then third, uh, he moved David against them. David is just as culpable. He's committing the same sin that the people are. But the whole nation's involved in this sin of arrogance, self-sufficiency, that the idea that they did it all themselves and aren't they great. They have reached the era, uh, the time of prosperity and the test of prosperity. And this is where this country's been the last 50 years. We have we arrived and we've been going through the test of prosperity and failing it miserably. And God is allowing the consequences to develop as divine discipline on the nation. So here we have, uh, he moves David against them. And this is the Hebrew word sooth, which is a hifil, which is a causative stem in the Hebrew, which is he's causing them or pushing him for a, a course of action. So it has that idea of urging someone to do something in a positive sense. It's used that way or in a negative sense to incite them or to entice them to do something is wrong. Now, we have to be careful when we use that with God because in the New Testament, in James 1.13, we're told that we're not to say when we're tempted or when we're tested literally in that passage. The same word perosmos can refer to uh, either being um, tempted or enticed to sin or tested, and that's the idea. Let no one say when he is tested that I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. See, he shifts from, from the testing. Testing is a situation that can give rise to our being tempted to sin, to solve the problem through our own self-reliance. And so we're not to say, well, God's, God's uh, tempting me. He's causing me to sin. For God cannot be tempted, that is, enticed by evil, nor does he himself tempt or entice 
anyone. So what happens here? This is interesting. I can see right now we're not going to get very far in the chapter because we have to set it up. And we're having a short class tonight because we have a special uh, guest speaker who's going to join us who is a mission, going to be a missionary in Israel. Okay, verse the parallel in First Chronicles 21, 1 and 2 says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David. Okay, now it's Satan who's moving David to number Israel. And it's the same verb. So we have... God doing it in 2 Samuel 23 and Satan do it in 1 Chronicles 21.1. And so, you know, your first option is to say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. And that's what happens if you just do a surface reading of the Scripture and you don't understand a number of ways in which God uh, sort of uh, gives permission to Satan to test believers. He allows that. Satan always wants to test believers. And so God allows that. And so we see that God's permission is involved because Satan can't do anything without God's permission. And Satan then goes ahead and he is the one who entices David uh, to number number the people. Uh, I, I want you to take a look at a passage that is important for understanding this in 1 Kings chapter 22. So we're almost to 1 Kings. That's about one page over. So you turn to the end of 1 Kings, to 1 Kings chapter 22, and this is on the verge of a major battle. And there's been a, a time of peace between Syria, same series today, and Israel. But in the third year... Uh, of Jehoshaphat, who's the king in in Judah, he goes to the king of Israel. Now, in verse 2, it says he goes down to visit the king of Israel. That's because if you're in Jerusalem, you go down to go anywhere because of elevation. And so now the king of Israel, who is Ahab, says, do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So apparently they've lost, lost this city, and Ahab wants to go get it back. So he wants Jehoshaphat to go with him, and it sets up everything. And in verse 5 of, uh, of this, this chapter, Jehoshaphat, who's a believer, says, don't you think we ought to pray about this? Don't you think we ought, ought to ask God's guidance before we go into this this war? And so uh, the king of Israel, it's interesting, Ahab is only called the king of Israel all through here, uh, which is rather derogatory, denies him in, uh, of his personhood in a sense, but it's treating him that way because he's been such an evil king in the north He's the one married to Jezebel, if you remember, and the one who sought to kill Elijah. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And he says to them in verse verse 6, Well, should I go up and start this fight with the Syrians over Ramoth-Gilead or not? And every one of them starts telling him, Go up, go up, you're going to have a great victory. There are a lot of yes men. They're going to do exactly what... um, what Ahab wants to have done, and Jehoshaphat, who's got a little more uh, discernment, says, isn't there someone here who's a prophet for the Lord? He's he's figured out that these are all prophets for the false gods. These aren't prophets for the Lord. And he says, is there a prophet of the Lord here that we can ask him? And I always love this verse in verse 8. Then the king of Israel, Ahab, says, yeah, there's this one guy, Micah, and we could inquire of him, but I hate him because he never tells me what I want to hear. I I hate him because uh, he never prophesies anything good concerning me. It's always something bad. And so uh, Jehoshaphat says, well, don't be so critical. Don't be so negative about one of God's prophets like that. And so then Ahab sends for uh, uh, Micaiah to come. And in the meantime, uh, these other fake prophets make their prophecies about how much of a victory that the uh, Isra- Israelites are going to have over the Syrians. And then um, Micah comes, Micaiah comes. Uh, 
And Micaiah starts off, doesn't look good for Ahab. He starts off and he says, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Now, Ahab doesn't like that because Ahab hates Yahweh. He's a pure pagan Baal worshiper. And the first thing the king says to him is to ask him the key question, which is, should we go to Ramoth Gilead or not? And Micaiah says, go and prosper. You'll do great. God's going to give it into your hand. You're going to have a great victory. And he had to have said this with a heavy tone of sarcasm because immediately Ahab says, how many times? So you get the point that this isn't the first time they've gone around on this. And he says, how many times do I have to tell you? Tell me the truth. Quit trying to blow smoke at me. And so Micaiah says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as a sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house. And, of course, the shepherd would be Ahab the king. And so he's just fed up, and he turns to Jehoshaphat and said, didn't I tell you he wouldn't say anything good about me? And then Micaiah says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And I imagine in this scenario it getting very, very quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And this is the very interesting scenario that Micaiah describes. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by. So that's all of the angels, fallen angels, as well as the elect angels. All the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, so the Lord's addressing this assembly of elect angels and fallen angels. And he says, who will persuade Ahab to go up? that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead. So they come up, and they get some conversation going, and people have one plan, and somebody else has another. And then, verse 21, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, said, gave him permission. Okay? You shall persuade him and also prevail, go out and do so. So this is the heavenly scene. It's like at the beginning of Job when God pulls the curtain back on what's happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm in heaven, that the angels are involved. You've got the sons of God, which refers to all of the angels, uh, holy and elect, I mean the elect and and the uh, fallen, all of them. And here you have a fallen angel come up and say, I'm going to deceive uh, Ahab. I'll be the one to do it. And so God gives him permission, and he goes. And as a lying spirit, verse 23, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. And then the false prophets get mad, and they, uh, they, one of them, Zedekiah, strikes Micah on the cheek and says, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? They start ridiculing him and everything else, and then he continues with it. But the point that we want to see here is that uh, just like in Job, God gives permission for Satan to do what Satan wants to do. But it shows us that God in his sovereignty is still in control. It shows us that he is not enticing David to do this. It is what's recorded in Chronicles uh, that that uh, Satan entices David to do it. Now, an interesting thing uh, that we have to recognize about uh, about Chronicles is First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings describe the beginning of the kingdom. At the, in, in Samuel, as we've studied in our, in our detailed study, going through the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon. And then in, in 1 Kings, the, the kingdom is going to split, and uh, you're going to have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And then through the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, God traces what happens in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
the southern kingdom, all of the kings are from the house of David. In the northern kingdom, they change numerous times, but God replaces one dynasty with another dynasty, one lineage with another, and all of them are given an F on their report card, and God said they all uh, followed uh, Jeroboam and the son of Nebat in their sin, and the sin is idolatry and rejection of God because Jeroboam was the one who set up the... Uh, uh, the golden calf in, at Bethel and the golden calf, a second one up uh, up at near uh, Caesarea, up near the north uh, and on the north, northern border at Tel Dan. Uh, many of us have been there outside the city of Dan. So these are the two centers of idolatry, and the northern kingdom is always struggling with idolatry. Southern kingdom too, but there were four or five kings that were... Um, that were obedient to the Lord and got high marks. So this is is the scenario here. God is going to bring judgment on, on Israel. So that's the focal point in these four books is how the people fail and God judges them. First, the northern kingdom goes out in 722 and the southern kingdom goes out in 586. Not so with Chronicles. Chronicles is written after the exile. The Israelites are coming back to the land. They first come back uh, you know, under Zerubbabel and Ezra, and then they have uh, another group comes back a few years later under, under Ezra, and then several decades later you have uh, another group that comes under Nehemiah. And Chronicles is written, many people believe that it was written by Ezra. That's the traditional view. And it is not written to describe the failings and the flaws of the nation and their collapse, but to remind them of God's grace in giving the Davidic covenant to the house of David and how God blessed the house of David. And so it doesn't tell us anything about uh, Bathsheba. It doesn't tell us anything about Uriah. That's not part of the, the scenario. And that's not unusual in the scriptures. You look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have four different authors writing four different gospels for four different reasons. And there's only two or three things that occurred in the in the life of Christ that are listed in every in all four of the of the of the gospels. So Chronicles is writing to encourage the people to return to the faith of their fathers and to focus in carrying forth the lineage of David. So it's it's positive, it's focusing on what God did uh, through David, and so that's, that's the reason that you have a different uh, slant on this uh, episode in uh, 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is also written in more of a rigorous uh, chronological order, and because of that, uh, we know that this happened just before uh, the end of David's life. He's done everything he can to purify and cleanse the priesthood and get all of the materials ready for Solomon to build the temple, but God has prohibited him uh, from uh, building the temple. And so this is the scenario, and there's going to be this judgment uh, by God because uh, God is uh, going to judge Israel for their sin of arrogance, their sin of self-sufficiency. He's going to bring this judgment on David because he is complicit in that. And it is also, it seems, specifically true of the military, with the exception of Joab. And as we look at this, what happens in verse 2 is the king tells Joab, commander of the army who is with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. Now, he, he's, he's not really just doing a census. Right now, you're still, we're still getting phone calls and seeing advertisements to fill out the census. And that's just taking a head count of the people in relation to uh, various r things r related to representation. This is quite different. He's not really taking a census of everybody. He's counting all the men. Even though they're not at war and there's no sign of war and God has given them victory, David now wants to see how many people he can put in the field and figure out how great his army is. 
So he's motivated by pride and arrogance. And Joab gets this. You know, Joab, Joab, who's just the, uh, he, he's so spiritually mature. You know, we've seen that. He's the last person you would think of who had any spiritual insight. He's, but he does have tremendous loyalty to David. Uh, he's extremely violent. He's very quick to kill anyone he perceives to be a threat to David. And yet he, he senses there's something really wrong here. Now, for Joab to sense that there's something wrong here is pretty significant because he, he's spiritually dense. Joab says to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. So they always start off with something positive, and he's saying, May God really bless you and expand your kingdom, and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But, you know, on the other side of but, you get the negative. Why does the, my Lord want to do this? David, why do you want to do this? What good is going to come of this? There, there, you've never done this before. Joab's been around long enough to where he has seen God give victory to Israel when Israel just is a little ragtag army and they're facing professional troops. And now David wants to build him up. He's wondering, is David going to go on an aggressive campaign against the neighbors, which is violating God's command? Remember back in Deuteronomy, God said that, that they have their land, the Ammonites have their land, the Moabites have their land. Uh, they're not to go take their land. They're to stick with the land that God has given them. And so Joab is waking up to the fact and alerting to the fact that there's, a, there's a, an arrogance problem going on and so he questions David about it. Now, we'll come back next time, and we will see what, what happens and, and why and what will, what will take place. So let's, uh, let, we're going to close in prayer. Uh, I'm going to switch over because I have to start a Zoom meeting because our speaker, David, is going to come in via, he's in, um, I think he's in North or South Carolina, and he's going to, or maybe Virginia, and he's going to speak to us about uh, his future ministry. Now, uh, his his father, he and his father are Messianic Jews, and they have, and his father's had a tremendous ministry. I know his dad has listened to me for many years, calls here occasionally, and leaves Sandy a message to get a hold of me. And, and he uh, and the son, uh, David, is going to uh, talk to us about what he's going to do. And so I'm going to let him explain that. So let me just close in prayer, and then we will switch over to the Zoom meeting. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity that you provided for us and for this opportunity uh, to get into your word and to realize just the consequences that arrogance and self-sufficiency has not only in our own lives, but it affects everybody around us. Father, we recognize we need to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and let you exalt us and not exalt ourselves. Uh, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray that you might strengthen him. We pray that you might raise up uh, spiritually mature believers who can challenge uh, those who are hostile to this country and will stand firm for the right reasons. And we pray that you would uh, restore this nation, even though we may go through some very tough times. But as believers, we're going to trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.